Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Sean Hare. Now, Sean is the founder of a company called WooTrain, which specializes in executive coaching. And I believe he just had his first uh, big event this morning. That's so right. Kudos on that, my friend. Thank you. And I want to thank you for taking time out of the day to be here and uh, share a little bit about your story. Uh, you and I had an opportunity to meet over at a local coffee shop recently, and uh, I hit it off with you, man. I loved your energy. It just uh, it was nice to talk to a Southern boy, too. Yeah, you know? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I Hearing think I held on to my accent. accent. I think I held on to my accent a little better than you have, but <laughs> but yeah, it was good to talk. Yeah, you know, you give me a little bit of bourbon, it'll come back out. All right, let's do that. That's just the way it rolls. Yeah. So uh, thanks for being here, brother. I, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man. So uh, let's jump into your life story, man. You, uh, you know, you when we first met, you were telling me a little bit about how you're transitioning now at the age of 40, but I'm curious as to how you got to this point, right? Like what led you up to this place in your life? So take us back to young Sean's yeah. world. Tell us a little about where you're from and what it was like growing up for you. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, my dad is a, a minister. And so the most immediate impact that that had on me as a young boy is that we moved a lot. Oh, and really? so up until I, 1986, when I was six years old, uh, we had been moving quite a bit. And my parents moved 17 times before that day. That was the 17th move when we moved into a little town outside of Memphis, 17 Tennessee. 17 times. 17 times. Wow. And so it was, we needed to find home and finding connection was, you know, always something that mattered to me and making friends. And I think I coped by becoming pretty relational. I always tried to use humor and making new friends. And so that was a big part of my childhood. I made a lot of friends, even though I was homeschooled. And so one of the biggest objections, you probably heard it before from homeschoolers, is they're super dorky and and they don't have socialization skills. Uh, I I didn't really have that problem, uh, but it was because I, for survival's sake, I had to meet a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, and I enjoyed meeting new people. You, I enjoyed meeting you, and we didn't know one another, and we're meeting in a coffee shop and left feeling like, hey, let's hang out somewhere. So because my dad was a minister, uh, what goes on inside my head uh, was very centered around faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to this day, that informs and guides a lot of the decisions that I make. And so I do like having these conversations when people talk about uh, mindset, uh, wellness, how do we get the best version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But you'll, you'll understand, it won't take long to, to, to hear me talk, that my faith and what I believe who God is and what the Bible says informs my decisions and my beliefs about what that looks like. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. I think a lot of people, you know, nowadays in the modern world, especially when you raise up, you know, this uh, religious idea, mm-hmm. people are immediately kind of turned off. Yeah. They, you know, they sort of, they sort of like look down on it in a way, you know, and, you know, I grew up in the Bible belt. And I know mm-hmm. what it's all about. You know, I saw, you know, I saw people who were devout. I saw people in the bar on Saturday night who were at church on Sunday morning. Yeah. You know? And that's just the way it was. I think people are people for the most part. But when you're talking about the mindset piece and how it informs the way that you think, mm-hmm. you know, what does that look like for you? Can you give me an example of how it's informed some of your, your business or, per, or, or even personal life? Yeah, look at it this way. Think about a, a car with, um, there's a lot of different parts to a vehicle. And you might, uh, you might say, well, I'm going to change the paint color or I'm going to put new shocks and raise it up and give it a lift. If you're from Arkansas, you're going to give yeah. it a lift, put on some <laughs> new pipes. Uh, but... But the fuel in the car is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And if you try to change that, it's going to mess everything else up. It's, this, it's how the car runs, how it's meant to run. Mm-hmm. 
that's the way I think about mindset. Mindset is uh, there are better ways to think about life that can give you a competitive advantage. Uh, there are ways that you can think about life that will make you perform poorly at work and in fitness and in finances. Uh, but what you can't change, in my opinion, is that we are created beings meant to live a certain way uh, because God made us to work a certain way. When I say work, I mean function. Uh, and so if, if we take that element out, then it's kind of like we're putting, in my opinion, we're putting paint on a car, new spoiler on it, and lifting it up. But then, you know, we're, we're dumping diesel in a gas tank. It's not mm-hmm. meant to work that way. Mm-hmm. And so, sure, we can function better. I think the Proverbs uh, is full of pieces of advice to tell us how to live the best way we can. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're not just advice from some random place. I believe they're advice that God's telling us, look, I made you. Here's how to work best. We don't have to like wonder, like, oh, I wonder what pool of wisdom is the best one to choose from. Right. Like, oh, this guy made me. The car, you know, we don't look around and say, I wonder what we should put in that gas tank. You know what goes in the gas tank. Gas goes in the gas tank. <laughs> so it's curious that you say that, you know, you, you brought up Proverbs, obviously one of the books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously I believe there's tons of wisdom in the Bible and many other ancient writings, right? Yeah. So a lot of times, though, in Western culture, we take it for granted but the same people who take that for granted will easily pick up something like, you know, the the Quran or, you know, some other um, sort of spiritual teaching from yeah. yoga. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the Hindu version right now, but they'll pick that up and they'll like read the advice as if it is a Bible of sorts yeah. and not even think twice about it. Okay. What's your, <laughs> what's your take on that? Uh, that's a really good question. I would say that for me, my faith is informed by leaving, by believing that, uh, the Bible is the one is the one true word of God. Okay, uh, that doesn't mean there isn't helpful knowledge in other places. Mm-hmm. God created all men, and so there are people that I think don't even agree with my perspective in life that say really wise things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot to learn from a diverse perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's certain truths in those books and in other people that you listen to them, and I would say, okay, that I don't believe that, but that doesn't mean they don't have anything useful to offer. Right. And we see that really resonating recently with that video that Ellen did that went viral. And she's trying, when she said, you know, she sat by George Bush, people got upset at her. And her point was, we can have moments of unity mm-hmm. with people we disagree with. Right. And I would say, I can learn a lot from people that I disagree with. Right. But that doesn't mean that, that I have to say that the thing that I think is true must not be true because this person believes something else. Mm-hmm. I think you can be a, you know, a, a, sincere individual mm-hmm. who is trying to live their best life and I don't agree with you on, on what you believe core truth is and I'm fine with that yeah that was that was it's interesting you brought that up that was a fantastic example of someone who just basically says you know what and and for those of you guys who haven't seen the video you know go pick up uh, probably on Ellen's Twitter page I'm sure but it's just a video that she shot with her and uh, uh, Portia and uh, George Bush and a couple other people, I can't remember, but they were just watching a Cowboys game. They got invited to the game. They're sitting out watching. And then she posted it, and she got a lot of blowback from people who were claiming that George Bush was Satan incarnate, <laughs> you know. And it kind of went viral, and, and there was a lot of hullabaloo. And then she ended up making a statement on her show about how, you know, even though she may not agree with all the things that George Bush says, that's no reason not to be kind. Right. You know. And I thought that was profound and, and definitely needed in today's world because, as you were saying earlier, it, it seems like a lot of times people think second, you know, and they just react first. Yeah. It should be the other way around, it seems. 
I totally agree. It's it's difficult, I think, in this day and age for people to be okay with disagreeing and being kind. Having mm-hmm. unity, knowing that I don't agree with you on like something, I would say, as trivial as politics. Right. Um, it, I don't think politics is that trivial, but it's not something that should define my relationships. Sure. You know, growing up, uh, you know, in a religious household, you know, my father was was involved in the church. He was a deacon, and you know, we sang and, and all that kind of fun yeah. stuff, and enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, looking at what you were saying earlier, you were talking about what you feel like truth is for you, mm-hmm. right? I feel like the closer we get to what truth actually is, the less options or the less sorts of you know, coloring and dressings there are to shape up what that thing is, right? Like being kind, I feel like it's just a universal truth. Like, I yeah. feel like if you're kind to people, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no matter what you believe, that's the way it shapes up. Yeah. And so like when people are coming from, you know, like uh, this idea of truth from, you know, maybe they read this book or that book or the Bible or what have you, I think all of the truths sort of converge at one point, no matter what book it comes from. And I'm wondering what your thought is on that. When, you, when you're using the word truth, is that what you mean? Or do you mean truth of, as in what's true for you as a person? Probably somewhere in the middle of those. Um, I don't think I would ever define truth as what I believe true to be. Mm. Because I think there are really dangerous pitfalls with that. Uh, I think Hitler probably thought he had his truth. I think we would all agree that's a pretty bad idea. Very. We don't want to say this barbarian over here, but he's well-intentioned and sincere to his truth. So there has to be something outside of that that transcends what I think. Uh, There are times in a moment where I think what I'm doing is right, but what I'm actually doing is being harsh to my wife, right? I might be talking ugly to her, but it feels right in that moment. So I would think you would say in that moment it felt true, but it wasn't true. It was me being impatient or unloving to her. Uh, So using myself as the defining thing of truth, I think would lead me down to a a pretty selfish path. It might work out for seasons uh, because some people are better than others at like learning just social survival skills. And so something seems good to them and they learn it and they adapt and it, and it rewards them for a short season. Uh, And short, in my opinion, is like our life. Our life is a short time in the, in the big scheme of things. So I would not say that it, that I would define truth for me or for anyone else as what I think truth is. That's, I think, building my life on convenience and the pragmatism of the moment, which I want to be more grounded than that. I want to pass something on to my children. I have four kids. My oldest is 13, and uh, I have a, a boy that's uh, 10 and a boy that's 7. Uh, and I think, man, I want to give them something that they can build their life on. And if all I can tell them is, hey, this is what your daddy thinks, but whatever you think, then, then I feel like, man, it's just like throwing them in the ocean and, and, and saying, I don't really know, but whatever you think, good for you, bud. And I, I want to I believe, and I do believe, that there's more to that. I can do better than that because I, I know for me the things that have worked are not when I relied on myself. And I, I would say I'm fairly intelligent, articulate, able to adapt socially kind of guy, but it's still, I still believe there's, there's truth out there that isn't dependent on whether I think it's true or not. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to f- find those things and pass that on to my children and tell my friends about it when they're hurting or having a hard time in their marriage or trying to figure out how to parent their kids. If, if I don't have something to offer that I think is like timeless and proven, I, I feel like I'm just offering my opinion. And there's 8 billion of those out there. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's one or two for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, growing up as a pastor's kid, was this mm-hmm. something that your dad instilled in you? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really good point. So you, I, you, people hear the word pastor's kid and they, they have two stereotypes that come up usually, right? It's the stereotype of a uh, straight-laced little boy in a tie going to church every Sunday uh, or like the wild guy who's singing hymns on, on Sunday but out smoking pot or doing whatever, like the things that his daddy doesn't know he's doing, whatever you fill in the blank, the things that dad would be upset about. Right. Um, and I wasn't really either of those things. I was really kind of all in, but I wanted it to be true. I believed like in the sincerity of what was happening. And I give credit to my dad on that. So I would say one of the cool things about my dad as a minister and as a person is he was who he was behind the pulpit at home. Mm. A better way, a, a more clear way of saying that is there wasn't a different per- person. It wasn't like a, a person that put on an air behind the pulpit when he spoke when he was home being dad. He was a humble guy, and even to this day, at 70 years old, he's reading and he's learning and he asking, he's asking good questions. And I, I don't think that's everyone's experience with their father or with the pastor. Uh, a lot of fathers are brash and harsh, um, and my dad was not any of that. He was a patient, kind person that helped guide me, but was never wishy-washy about what he thought or where he thought I should go. Mm. And so I think that really helped me see not someone that was forcing me to believe something, but someone that was living it. And I was seeing it work through his kindness to me. Mm-hmm. So the proof, the proof to me was like, he was being loving and kind, not that he was forcing me to live a certain, li- live a certain way. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is he was leading by example and that he was a man of integrity. What he, what he did publicly, he did privately. Yes. What he did externally, he felt internally. And I find that to be one of the most attractive traits in men that, that there could be. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I think today for me, it's very difficult. I, I do my best to be a man of my word. I don't always keep my word, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I recognize it and I gen- and generally take responsibility when I fall short. And I feel like there's a lacking of that. I feel like that some somehow along the way we've arrived at this place where, well, whatever, man. Yeah. You know, you do what you do, what you want to do. And for me, it's difficult because as much as I don't want to be tied to expectations and, and as much as expectations can be painful on some level, you have to have agreements with people and those agreements bear expectations. Yeah. And when those agreements are broken, guess what? We call people like Sean, who used to be a lawyer yeah. and say, Hey, you know what? This agreement was broken. You know, I need your help kind of a thing. What do you think the reason is why a culture among men, we'll mm-hmm. say it that way, is what it is, as opposed to maybe 60 years ago when when agreements were firm. And it seemed like people cared a lot about their dependability and their reputation of being dependable. What do you think, James? That's a great question. And, I, and for me, it comes down to incentive. I believe that human beings are incentive-based machines, right? And, uh, you know, if I'm dealing with another man mm-hmm. and he has no consequence for breaking an agreement with me, then chances are that over time, if that's allowed to continue, that that breaking of agreement, whether it's small or large, will continue, continue, continue. That will then be instilled in future generations, the the men and the children that he rears or comes in contact with. Mm. And we slowly just slide down that path of where it doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. For me, that's, that's how I see it. So I feel like in today's world, it's almost sacrilege to stay with the religious theme, yeah. to call someone out on their BS, mm. you know? I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm off base, but that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I think that we, we have come to 
a place in society where we're saying, hey, I, I don't think you're making a wise choice. And I think it's about the nicest way that you can say it, right? I don't think you're making a wise choice there. Or, or another nice way of saying it would be, is there a way we could do that better? Okay. But saying stuff like that comes across as offensive to those who think, who, who are you to speak any kind of truth into my life? I'll live how I please. That's exactly it. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head right there. Like, who are you to say something to me? Comes back to that idea of like how self-important and selfish we can, you know, as a race or as a, as a, as a collection of beings be. Mm. And in that place, like, where's the learning? There can be no learning, right? Yeah. And you, you talked about how your dad was a humble guy and you, the, the next sentence was, he's always reading and asking questions. That's where we need to be. Like, you know, I, I feel like sometimes I was born in the wrong century because <laughs> I, I look back and, and obviously we romanticize the past. The past was not this fantastic yeah. place to live. But you see movies and, and you understand that there was an element of society that was like a warrior poet. And that's how I see myself in the modern world, right? Like I'll fight for the things that I believe in, right? And I'll write for the things that I believe in. That's good. Right? I'll yeah. fight and I'll write and, and I'll have a conversation with anyone who is of intellect and willing mm -hmm. to engage me. But you're right when you say the slightest little thing can be perceived as offense and we forget that being offended is a choice. Yeah. I, I, I wrote about this in an art, uh, email for your audience. Like I write a daily email uh, about business practices based on the Proverbs. But I, was, I wrote recently that I had a conversation with a guy in the coffee shop, same coffee shop that you and I talked in. And he was a, he's a VP of a company uh, reports directly to the CEO, and it's a global billion-dollar company. So this guy reports to the CEO of a global billion-dollar company. I'm sitting across the table from him, and I ask him this question. I said, imagine two 40-year-old men in middle management. In 20 years, one of them will be the CEO, and the other one will still be right there in middle management. If you were to guess, what's the one differentiating factor between the CEO and the middle one? I just want his opinion. Like, if he were guessing, what's that one thing? And he didn't name a degree. He didn't name that one of them knew how to, you know, use agile project management software, though that's a fine thing to do. Uh, he said, always staying a humble learner. And I, it struck me as humility. We think of humility as something counter to confidence. And if you met this guy, he's very confident but very humble. He knew what he was good at. He knew what what his skills were, but he was very humble and willing to meet with me. And I, I'm a nobody. He didn't know me. His daughter set up this coffee meeting because she knew that we might just have some things in common. But we sometimes associate confidence as being counter to humility. And I think the danger with that is you'll be confident and it might get you that first entry level job and it might get you promoted a time or two. But then that confidence, if it's not mixed with a willingness to be humble, willingness to learn, will make you stagnant. And, and you'll stay in that place. And people will pass you because they're getting new information. So pride, confidence will turn into pride, and that will turn into this. I have the answers. Whereas a humble person will say, where can I get the best answers? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, there's a mindset where people think, eventually I'm going to get to this point, and they're looking at someone across the hall in the big corner office, and they think that person's at that point. And so they want to say, I want to get to the point where I'm the person with all the answers. And they just, at some point in their development tell themselves they're there. They tell themselves, that's where I'm at right now. And that's, I think, where their growth is going to stop. The leaders, the, the really dynamic leaders, where you pick the field, they're the ones going, I want to learn. I want to grow. How can you make me be better? 
Uh, I'm an executive coach, and, and here's what it looks like. So executives, if you read what they're doing to grow, they're bringing people in. Now, it might be internal feedback, but a lot of them are bringing in coaches to say, hey, ask me questions. Show me a, an accurate reflection of myself because we have a biased reflection of ourselves, right? We look in the mirror and we think our muscles are bigger than they are. Uh, and so we think we're kinder than we are and we think we're more talented than we are. So it's helpful to have a place for someone to, to say, well, what about this and what about that? And ask good questions to reveal who you really are. Mm-hmm. Executives that, that bring those conversations in, they're trying to be learners. The Bible says 2,000 years ago, right, it says uh, there is great wisdom in the abundance of counselors. So it's the same idea, right? The person that wrote that was King Solomon, who the Bible says was the wisest man that ever lived. And King Solomon said, there's wisdom in abundance of counselors. He could have said, I'm the wisest man, yo. Come (laughs) bring it on to me. Ask me what you got. But he said, there's wisdom in abundance of counselors. And so I think, man, for for boys today, just bring it back full circle. One of the things I want to instill in my boys is always be humble, always be learning, never think you have all the answers. And so when my son goes to football practice, I tell him, learn what the coach is saying. I don't want to hear you say, I know, one time. That makes me, I, I, I don't want to ever hear you say, I know. Even if you know, don't say, I know. Just, yes, sir, yes, sir. Be so absorbing that information. And I think there's something missing in the modern psyche that makes us think, if we act humble, act like we still need to learn, we're going to sell ourselves short in opportunities. And that's just not the case. Yeah, there's some research that's been uh, released on the number of children that parents are having, mm-hmm. right? And we talked about earlier this idea of, of a, a younger generation or even people our age being self-important, right? And there's some research that suggests that you know, back in the day when you and I were kids, do you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I have an older sister and a younger sister. Okay, you got sisters. I have a brother, okay. right? And everyone I knew in my neighborhood had brothers or sisters. But today it's different. Like a lot of parents are just having one kid. And so it comes down to investment. And a lot of times parents are focusing all of their investment on one spot and one child, one offspring, if you Mm -hmm. will, right? One genetic collection that they can propel into the future. And so some of the research is suggesting that the reason that kids are growing up with this idea that they're self-important and don't need to listen is because the parents are showering them with so much yeah. because there isn't another place to focus all of that energy and effort. And that's their one genetic investment to put forward. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, it is. And and if I've learned one thing, there's no uh, quicker way to make some online enemies and start talking about parenting and vaccines (laughs) and politics. So, uh, but I do have opinions, so I I don't know who will hear this or if they'll ever track me down. Um, But I think it's a big danger to pretend that your kid knows what's best for them. Uh, I think it's a big danger for you to give them everything they want. And it's a big danger for you to draw the circle of what they need too large. Uh, I'm not saying don't do nice things for your children, but a lot of times we make this circle around them of, well, here's what they need way too large. What they need, we say, is the best education around. I don't know that 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 makes any sense if you really think about it. What is even the best education? Is it the most expensive school? Uh, my daughter, like I said, we homeschool. We, she goes to a co-op, meaning one day a week, another teacher is teaching on certain subjects. And we went to vacation for mm-hmm. 10 days, and she came back. She was three weeks behind, and she worked her tail off for days and days, like 12-hour days. My little 13-year-old daughter is just plugging away at algebra, and, and it was hard for her anyway. And she was about to go into school 
for the first time, the little co-op, and she asked, like, she was worried about how well she was going to do. And I told her, I don't care. I really don't care. I'm watching you do a hard thing for 12 hours a day. That's better than any grade you're going to make. Learning how to work hard for 12 hours is way more valuable than the grade that you make. Now, she did fine. You know, she didn't make all 100s. But I think that we look at our kids' childhood and we have these benchmarks because we think it reflects on us. They have to go to this school or perform this well in, in a sport instead of saying, are they going to grow up and be hard workers and be kind? We've, we've mixed what successful parenting looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, my preacher says it this way. He says, marriage is for friendship. Parenting is for teaching. And if you mix the two, you're going to have a really bad life. <laughs> and I think we have. We, we're coaching our wife all along or coaching your husband all along, but then you're trying to be best friends with your kid. Yeah. And you're not, it's not meant to be that way. I'm just saying don't have friendly moments. I love my kids. I was going to that thing you mentioned earlier that I have today. Like, and my kids knew it was a big deal. And every one of them just came up and gave me a big hug. I hope it goes well. And we had a really special moment at the home. So I'm not saying don't be friendly, but let's get that right. And you were mentioning a little bit like, this idea of what we give our kids and that investment. Right. I'm all for giving them things, but I would say things that are of eternal value. And I don't, I don't mean like giving them a Bible, though that's fine. But I do mean teaching them how to be kind, teaching them how to work hard, teaching them to, inv- to, for, to them, teaching them to invest in something that's valuable. Mm-hmm. We've taught them as a culture that they are the most important thing. Right. We, we teach them that. Oh, we don't let anyone lose. We uh, work. We make sure you all get A's. We give you everything you want. We watch parents tremble at the idea of not knowing how to handle a kid who wants something in the store. I know how my dad handled that. We just all went home. <laughs> like he didn't even get the, the buggy full of groceries. Right. If I broke down in the store, he didn't even wait to buy the groceries. Like we're just all going home and we're going to deal with this. I'll come back and get this stuff later. There was no wrestling in his mind of like, oh man, I wonder how. I'm going to get Sean to shut up about this ball over here that he wants. Right, right. Uh, and I think that w- when we don't know how to handle those situations, we're telling our kids, one, that we're incompetent, mm-hmm. that they set the boundaries, mm-hmm. which is terrifying whether they, you believe it or not. Your kids are terrified if they believe they set the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're saying to them, you're the most important thing. You're always the most important thing. And that's just not correct. Yeah, it's true. I, I love the way that you frame that with the parenting versus the, you know, the relationship with the, the spouse, significant other. Well, it's not original to me, but I'll claim it. Okay. <laughs> Heard it here first, guys. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Completely yeah. unique. Sorry, original Harry. person. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love, I love how whoever framed that, framed that for you. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and hearing that it makes perfect sense. I think in terms of the, the parenting piece and, and again, I'm not a parent, so I'm speaking from observation only, but it definitely seems as though there's been too much given too soon. And I feel like that robs anyone, not just kids, but it robs anyone of the opportunity to become confident, to become a humble learner, right? Like how many times have you failed at something and been humbled and realized that you needed to come back to that thing with a new set of questions? Yes. Right? And I think when we take that away from kids as parents or take that away from coworkers, take that away from our spouses, whomever that might be, we're actually robbing them which is a hard thing for me to say because I'm one of those people that wants to save everybody. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I, a lot of it, I'll say, I don't really even blame the parents in the sense, I don't blame them in the sense like, where did you get that idea from? I know where they got it from. And my, like, I think I know. We, if we look at history, it was our parents' generation. I'm mm-hmm. assuming you and I are about the same age. Our parents' generation that, that came into wealth as a country, mm-hmm. right? Before that idea, before that time, the idea of a kid 
being entitled to a car at any time would have been ludicrous. Like, that's not going to happen. Not at, not at 16, not at 18, probably not at 21. Like, that's not going to happen. But then when you and I were growing up, kids were like, if my parent doesn't get me a car at 16 or 17, 18, I have loser parents. That's what they thought, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, now, my dad was a minister, and so I, he did get me a car. It was a little later than everyone else on the curve. But, it, but if, imagine, so imagine the generation of kids whose parents first came into wealth, I'd say like generally across middle class. Middle class was very wealthy. They come into wealth. They get their kids all these things, which were fine. They had it. They were like, my parents didn't have it. I'm going to do it for my kids. I totally get that mentality. But then that generation who now did get their car at 16 or 17, did get um, all the, the fanciest things and the gadgets, uh, which again, there's nothing wrong with fancy things or gadgets. I, I love, I, I'm a gadget guy. I, I love, love them all. Yeah, I do. I'm looking at some cool ones in here. Like, let's talk about them <laughs> later. Uh, I think that we've equated the provision of gadgets, the, the shiny things, the fancy things, the fashionable things as good parenting mm-hmm. because we didn't know any better as a culture when we got it for the first time, we'd be like, oh, our parents must really love us. It, it, this has given us meaning and status. And it's really shallow. Mm-hmm. But when, when there's nothing else, when your truth doesn't point you to something else as meaningful and significant, that's the kind of thing you fall back to. And then you think that's what you're passing on to your children. Right. Is material wealth, possession, and status through the, the ride or the cars or the education. And I think that's a mistake. No, 100%. The whole idea of drawing status from externalities is backwards. You know, I, I think... Uh, you said it way better than I did. <laughs> I used fewer words, but <laughs> your color was much better than mine. So <laughs> I'll compliment you in return. No, but you were talking about one of your clients earlier, uh, jumping on TikTok and getting like a bunch of attention, yeah. right? And yeah. uh, I was listening, I was on Instagram or somewhere and I saw Gary V talking about TikTok and someone questioned and said, you know, well, why would you want to be on that app? It's just a bunch of teenagers doing stupid shit, you yeah. know? And he's like, yeah, and so was every other, you know, application before it matured. <clears throat> and so I logged on just to see what it was like, and I see, like, these 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, you know, like, doing these little sexy dances and, you know, asking people to make them famous. Yeah. And if this video doesn't go viral, I'm taking it down. Yeah. And this is just all pointing to this culture of, you know, drawing worth from what someone else's opinion of you may or may not be. Yeah. You just described why I don't let that my 13 year old daughter have TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's exactly why I don't want her to have to wrestle with what she's seeing and and believe that that's how the competition works socially. Oh man, it makes me sad. But what you, what you're saying is uh, true. And that is, is that, does that reveal something about our culture? Mm -hmm. Man, it it really does. We've, we've gauged ourselves by this, um, Man, we could talk for a long time about social media and the way that we've trained ourselves to think about uh, our social significance through what we get. Uh, but I, I fear for our future as a, as a culture because I'm, it's not like just the kids. I mean, how many times do you see parents at the park? And I'm one of them. I, I don't want to act like I'm too good for this. Like I'm totally one of the parents that sits at home, sits at the park, while my kids ask me time after time after time, like, hey, Dad, what, did you see that? Did you see that? You want to come play? And I'm like, well, just, just a second. And I'm not like saving my family on my phone. I'm just looking at nonsense that I could look at later. Um, I am worried about the impact. Mm-hmm. But the, the TikTok thing is, is fascinating to watch these little kids. Um, I don't know what they knew beforehand, but I know they for sure by the time they're showing up on TikTok, they're very acquainted with like sexual imagery mm-hmm. and the appeal of like their body and what that communicates and trying to leverage that for social engagement. 
at, at young ages. And it makes me, makes me sad for them. Yeah, I was, I, it was actually fascinating. I, when I logged on, I started flipping through there and, you know, not to make this all about TikTok, but the social experiment that we're undergoing right now is something that history has never seen. And to see that age group on TikTok, uh, there were videos that these young girls and even some young guys are posting about why no one wants to date me. And then they'll point out these things that they feel are negative about themselves, right? And then they're making this public. So they're giving it energy, right? And then, then yeah. and basically what they're doing is they're fishing for compliments, right? They, yeah. they think that this is going, this, this negative sort of, you know, statement I'm going to make about myself is going to cause someone to feel sorry for me. And then they're going to come back and psychologically they're going to get a payoff, but that's not the way it's work. Not the way it works. They actually are reinforcing their beliefs about themselves when they don't get that affirmation or that person that comes back and says, Oh, woe is you. Let me be your friend kind of a thing. Yeah. And you have to wonder what that's going to turn into as these kids get into their 15, 16, you know, their twenties going into college and you know, the really the brain doesn't fully form until you know, 23 to 25, depending on what research you read. Mm. It just makes me wonder, man. It, it scares me. Really, There's an article. I think the name of it is, if, is uh, the worst thing on TikTok isn't porn. And it's talking about this mentality with mm. these kids reaching for affirmation. Okay, so I'm not alone in thinking this. No, no, no. <laughs> and I think that I, I, when you think about the level of uh, invasiveness, pervasiveness that social media has, and how really, as a parent, you feel so silly telling your kid you can't have TikTok or I don't want you to look at Instagram because, I mean, it's pictures of my friends or my grandparents. Like, uh, And, again, how you parent is, is fine. But what I think is a, a mistake that we're making is allowing those platforms to form what our kids think social acceptance look like. And, right. and, and it's not just kids. Uh, here's what I've told my wife recently. Think about the people that you like that you want to hang out with and think about the people that, that you don't like and you don't want to hang out with. Then take the people that you don't want to like, that you don't like and don't want to hang out with or that, that maybe you were friends once and now things seem awkward and you like most people have those names already coming to your mind, right? Then ask yourself, how much of the reason why that person is in that bucket is because of social media? Something they said, something they posted, something they liked, something they didn't like, mm-hmm. pictures that I saw of them at a party that I wasn't invited to, like nonsense. It sounds like nonsense, but you know it's real. Right. How, much of, how much of our real across-the-table relationships are being hampered by this virtual, uh, I would say, assessment that we are giving people on social media, which is very dangerous because people just on the fly of the moment, like it spurt stuff off on Facebook. Of course people were hanging out all the time without me before social media. Now I get to see pictures of it. Does that mean I'm not a good friend? No, it's just we live in a different world. And so we FOMO all over the place and think that person must not like me. So I think it's a really healthy tactic to go, what is it that makes me not like this person? Is it something on social media? And when I say social media, I really mean digital. Texting, not Mm -hmm. texting, emailing, not emailing, something I liked or didn't like. And I was like, punt it all, punt it all. And then say, could I sit down and have dinner with that person? Have a coffee or a drink with that person? Then go do it. And then if you like that, then you like that person. But I believe that we, we as adults don't do that. And so our kids are watching us judge our social life and make social assessments of our people around us by, by the same thing. Our kids are watching. So when they see daddy go, I can't believe those people hung out without me. This person hasn't liked my Instagram in four months. Like that kind of stuff. It's real. I'm not saying that doesn't hurt, but let's know what to do with that hurt. 
mm-hmm. and move it to the side because our kids are watching. And so they're saying, oh, that's what acceptance looks like. So then you have a 14-year-old girl with an eating disorder begging people to like her on TikTok, telling them I'm going to kill myself or delete this thing or whatever if it doesn't get so many views. Because not, not, she is selfish and self-centered, but she's ignorant because she hasn't seen healthy confidence modeled anywhere around her. And that makes me sad. Yeah, and she's hurting yeah. Interior. Yeah, yeah. Inside. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know if you saw this, uh, this sort of push to get rid of the likes on social media. Have you seen this? Thing? I've heard talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, um, you know, in doing some of the research on how the platforms were developed, it seems like there was quite a big push into creating something that would intentionally be addictive along those lines. Okay. And now there's been a little bit of lashback or flashback or what's the correct word? Backlash. Backlash. There's been some backlash and people saying, well, do we really need to have likes on these posts? Mm -hmm. And the question is, well, maybe, maybe not. Right. And so I know Facebook is one company that's at least entertained the idea of getting rid of that. So I think it'd be interesting to see what social media would look like if you weren't constantly being validated. You know, it's funny, you pull up your phone and you flip through it and it looks an awful lot like a slot machine, doesn't it? Oh, it, you know? <laughs> that's funny. I've never thought about that. Yeah. It's awful lot like a slot machine. You're just yanking that handle and the thing keeps spinning, right? And you're that's just right. waiting for something to validate what you did. Show me some likes, show me some notifications, show me something. And mm-hmm. I just wonder if it would have the same impact if that was removed. I don't know. I know for me, like my use of Facebook is like completely selfish. I don't use it a lot. Uh, but I, when I open my Facebook, it's because I have that little number saying there's notifications, and I look on those notifications, and I'm done. I don't even go to my news feed. So that te- like I have a purely selfish uh, use of of the feed. Uh, I think there are people that do. You know, I know a lot of people that scroll that feed, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with it. But I, what you're saying is, is there a chance that we're getting like a you know what is it a dopamine hit? from seeing engagement and we do they know we do for sure uh, i do i like it when someone likes an article that i write and if i put a link out there and two days go by and no one's even liked it i'm like let's delete it no one <laughs> no one's clearly seeing it no i don't need this kind of this kind of record of my failures i'm out terrible there. that's right i'm a failure like calling my wife hey will you mind liking that just get the, get the algorithm <laughs> pumping it up a little bit like it and comment on it that would be great yeah. but but no we, we've got to figure out how to find something that's real uh, connection that's real, uh, and I don't. When I say I don't think it's a mystery, I know that. W- I mean, we know how to do it, right? I love walking across the street to a neighbor's house and sitting across a fire and drinking a beer and talking to him about life. That's real. Right. We've got to figure out how to how to build that connection with people, not fear it, and then pass that on to our kids. Mm-hmm. When our kids see us with that blue light in our face all day long, and we're willing, we're content to let them hold that screen in their face all day long, we're telling something to them. Yeah, we like it because they're not bothering us, right? We like it when my, you know, you like it when your kid plays Fortnite for four hours, and my kid plays Fortnite. Don't I mean? But there's a lazy part of me that would say, oh, I don't have to. I'm not getting any questions right now. He's playing Fortnite. But then my kid is is taking something from that. My boy is learning that this is what social interaction looks like. This is what healthy families look like, and it's just not. It's okay to play video games. I don't want anybody like calling you up or emailing you saying, "This is who's this loser guy? It's anti-technology." I'm not. But I want to, again, I want to communicate to my kids and what I say and what I do and, and in the time that I let them do it, what's the most important thing? Not immoral versus moral, because I don't even think that's how the world works. Mm. What's, the, what's the best thing? That, dude, you, man, you, you really brought the heat on that. There's something that you said in there, and I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but you were talking about how 
your kid sees you with the blue light in your face and you're teaching him something. I think a lot of people don't see that as teaching them something. I think a lot of people see that as just being like you're just passively spending time with someone. But man, that is so powerful. The fact that you have an impressionable soul and you are teaching them something by not interacting with them. Right. I'm telling him this is what a father looks like. And Mm -hmm. so for me, as a person of faith, I don't get to choose when I teach my kids about God. That's the way I would say it. I'm teaching my kids about God. I may be teaching them poorly. So is their earthly father detached, distracted, and disinterested? If that's what they see, they're going to have a hard time believing that their heavenly father is any different. Mm. So that's the way I process that. And I, I, it sounds good coming out of my mouth, maybe. And I'm, but I don't want to pretend that I get that right all the time. I do want to get it right all the time. But I want to teach my kids the truth about God. God is loving and caring and, and, and interested and merciful and never too busy for us. And so if I communicate that poorly, on a, on, a, on a purely pragmatic standpoint, I'm teaching my kid to be a bad human by being distracted and disinterested in the, to the people in the room, right? How many times have you been in a room like, and people can't look you in the face, you're having a conversation because they're looking at their phone. I appreciated that about you when you're like, I don't have a TV. Like you're, you're pushing tech certain ways to make your life focus on the best things. Mm-hmm. So I want to do that for my kids. I don't, and I don't want to teach them that the, that the answer is no Fortnite, because then that's a rule. They'll always need your reaction against a rule. I want, them to, I want it there to be a positive, like, oh, daddy's available, and daddy's better than Fortnite. Mm-hmm. That's hard. That well, takes effort. That takes work, because I'm not better than Fortnite if I don't try to be. I'm, that's boring, right. I'm boring, and I'm impatient, and I, or I'm harsh. That's not better than Fortnite. I love how you take that on, though. You, you take it on as a challenge and, and you say, this is something that I could be. This is a person I can become and then I can deliver the goods to my kids. And I love how you frame that as a responsibility yeah. that you have as a parent. And I feel like what you said a minute ago is all too true. And at least my observation of modern parents, and that is many are grateful when the kids are preoccupied. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and the fact that you said that you're teaching them something there, man, I think that's going to hit a lot of people hard. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's oh. amazing. There is something that I, you said earlier that I wanted to, to dive a little deeper in. We were talking about, um, I think we were talking about your father and you were talking about how, you know, he's still learning and growing as an older man. And then you were talking about this dichotomy between humility and I want to say confidence, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly an article that you'd written. And so I'm wondering where vulnerability fits in that equation, because you're talking a lot about parenting and talking about interactions with people mm-hmm. and your children. I think uh, vulnerability gets lost a lot of times. And I'm wondering what your definition of that is yeah. and how it fits in maybe between, or does it fit into that, that dichotomy at all? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, and I'm not just saying that because, like, I'm on your podcast and I want to <laughs> agree with you. Um, when you say the word vulnerability, that resonates with me on a lot of levels. Um, I've, been, I've been wounded in communities where I, there wasn't enough vulnerability, and I've seen communities um, be really healthy. When I say communities, I'm just talking about, like, certain organizations or groups of people I've been around. I've seen them be really healthy and thrive when there is, uh, I would say, healthy vulnerability exemplified. Uh, so... I think you kind of talked about two buckets there. One, my dad and vulnerability, and then two, um, when, I, when I wrote it, confident, about confidence mm-hmm. and humility. And it fits in both places and probably the same way. So I, I guess like it doesn't really matter which order I take it, but let's take the business one first. 
when I think of vulnerability, I think, uh, and, and, and I want to say it out loud so you can tell me if that's not what you're thinking about. I think of a willingness to share um, insecurities or fear or doubt or mistakes about yourself, realize them, share them ex- in an environment that you might not otherwise share them. Okay? That's what I think of. Is that fair? Is that kind of what you're thinking of when you think of vulnerability? Yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on. For me, I, I see it very similarly. Okay. So when confidence turns toxic and becomes arrogance is when that confidence says, turn, transforms you, that you have no vulnerability or that it is unsafe to communicate that vulnerability. You might drink the Kool-Aid and think you have no mistakes, therefore you have nothing to be vulnerable about. Or you may know, and I think most of us know, that we have something in the closet. I think we mo- most of us know we got a little something to hide. I might tell a story about my kid. Um, my youngest son's adopted, and uh, we were... We were cleaning up the house, and we were looking in. There was something that smelled terrible in the door in the bathroom. I'm from the South. That door is what you pull out. So I don't know if you're hearing that right. <laughs> uh, Bud the cat. We pull out, and there's a, there's a toy wrapped in tissue that smelled like poop. Mm. And I, it was Levi's toy. I said, Leo, what is this? Um, this is a toy. It's like, why would you put it in here? Why does it smell like poop? And he said, because there's poop on it. He just looked at me like, well, that's why it smells like poop. There's poop on it. <laughs> Um, you should know that. Yeah. What's, what's your problem, Dad? Uh, and I, I've used this illustration before when I was talking to someone. We all have things with poop on them in our drawers. The, que- the, the question is, are you going to let someone into your life enough to, to, to clean out, help you clean out, clean up? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way it looks in business is what I just said. Your confidence can lead you to a point, if you let it, to where it will keep you from being vulnerable. And that might look like, hey, here's a way I need to get better at something. Here's a mistake I made in a meeting. How can I do that differently? That's good vulnerability in business. Uh, in life, you're talking about my dad, and I think that was the other option, or in parenting, um, then, then vulnerability looks like, hey, I don't have all the answers. The fact that my kid annoys me doesn't mean I don't need to have a loving response. If I'm not vulnerable in, as a parent, then I discipline because I'm annoyed, not because he did something wrong, right? If I discipline my kid the same because he was walking through the house and he's got seven-year-old fingers and he dropped something and it broke, if, I dis- if that's the same response from me as when he says to my face, I'm not going to do that four times in a row, then I've got the problem, right? I'm not sensing, I- I'm not being vulnerable enough for myself to say, hey, I'm just annoyed over here. He's a kid, and he dropped it, and it broke. And, yeah, I'm mad. It was my brand-new whatever, right? He, uh, he didn't mean to do that thing. But it, if I discipline him the same, if the consequences are the same, I'm not being honest with myself about my own vulnerabilities. That really what's happening is I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed he didn't do anything wrong. Just made a mistake that we all make. But if, I, if, I, if the consequences – you see what I'm saying? If the consequences are the same for being annoying – when you didn't really do anything wrong, you didn't choose it. It was a mistake. It was a mistake, but it was just a sloppy mistake mm-hmm. as opposed to out-and-out rebellion. I think my dad modeled that well. And so what it showed me is I can be vulnerable. I don't get punished for being vulnerable. I get punished for rebellion in my heart. Okay? Does that make sense? So I think I'm following you. So you're referring to your son in that example in, in his vulnerabilities as a young, as a young boy? Oh, well, I, I, I kind of switched mid thing between me, like me as a father and me as a son. As a parent, we, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to say before, I have to say before I deal with my son, am, am I responding to him out of annoying, like out of inconvenience? There's another a word mm-hmm. because I'm inconvenienced or because there's an issue in his heart and character that I need to deal with. Mm. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. 
Right? So you're making a distinction between like a character building moment versus something inside you that's just riled up in that particular yeah. moment. Yeah. 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 You know, he drops a bowl of uh, soup on the floor and I'm irritated, but he has seven year old hands and I'm the one that told him to take it over there. And so, yeah, I hope that he learns to get better at holding bowls of soup. <laughs> uh, but that's, I shouldn't let that inform my response to him because my level of inconvenience just rose off the charts. Yeah, that for sense? sure. Yeah, definitely. I'm following you there. So let's pair that up to like the business world, the corporate world, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're talking about meetings earlier. You know, you were yeah. talking about humility is one aspect, I believe, of being vulnerable. And I think one of the things that I think of when that word comes to mind is uh, I think a lot of people have a negative connotation with it in terms of, you know, in terms of easily attacked or sort of uh, you're in a spot where, where, you know, people could take you to task. And then, of course, your ego gets called into question and all the rest of it. And so I think of vulnerability as being the potential for that, but not necessarily the absolute outcome. So for example, if, if I use a military example, there's, let's say there's a convoy rolling through enemy territory. Well, that convoy is vulnerable, Okay. but it doesn't mean that it will be attacked. Right. Okay. And so when I'm thinking of vulnerability and kind of what I was getting at with the humility versus confidence piece is like, where does it factor in? Because like, if, if you're coaching me, for example, and I'm telling you, man, I really, I really screwed the pooch in that meeting, bro. You, yeah. You know, you gotta, you gotta help me out, man. I, uh-huh. I really, I really I need some help. Right. I'm putting myself, I'm sort of saying like, Hey man, I'm, I'm trusting you with my fears. Yeah. And you could, if you were a bad friend, just shit all over me. Right. <laughs> right. But if you're a good coach, you're going to take that for what it is and recognize that I'm at a moment of weakness and not attack, but like, give me what I need in that place. Yeah. That's good. And I would say if you were to come to me, and say what you just said, I would go, you've already done the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. That is recognize that you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing. The, the person that's overly confident or arrogant or refuses to be vulnerable won't even realize that or they won't allow themselves to express it or feel it long enough to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So if you come to me and say that, I would tell you promptly, you've already taken the hardest step. You've acknowledged that you, made, that you did a hard thing or you made a mistake. Now the, the next part is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. What do we do here? Why, why did that happen? What can we do to fix it? What we can do to put ourselves in a better position so that it doesn't happen again? Those are actually f- kind of fun rebuilding. You know, there might be consequences of that meeting that are like embarrassing or shameful for a season, but you've already made the hardest step for your character and that is recognizing it. And then we can build from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you know, you and I talked a little bit about some of the hats that you've worn yeah. as a young man to now. Where in your development thus far, do you feel like that became clear to you? I feel like this is a skill that a lot of people brush aside, but it could be one of those big things. Like you're using the example sitting across from the the big company executive saying, Hey, you know, humility matters, right? This guy who wants to learn is probably going to be the guy who steps up and gets the position. And certainly vulnerability plays a role in that. Yeah. You know, what's your take on that? So do you mean of the, I want to make sure I understand. So of the hats I've worn, um, when did, when did I first learn about vulnerability? Yeah. When did you, again, I, I, I'm just pairing it back to my story as a younger man, my, my, you know, we haven't had a chance to really talk a whole lot, but my upbringing was a bit chaotic. Okay. So my defense mechanism was I developed the know-it-all sort of attitude, right? Yeah. I had no certainty, so I had to create it for myself. Yeah. Right. So I was that kid who 
wasn't humble at all. I was mm. faking confidence. I was faking like I knew what was going on when yeah. inside I was dying. And, and what do you think made right. you that way? Just uh, being in a chaotic uh, household. Like okay. my, both of my parents came from abusive homes. Okay. My, Sorry. No, it's not your fault. <laughs> my, my dad and they're my, my, both my parents are great people. I love them mm. to death. But my mom uh, in her situation was probably worse than my dad's. And she learned to fight back like she was a fighter. Mm-hmm. My dad at three months old was diagnosed with polio, so he couldn't run away from it. Right. Mm. So he learned to be the guy to, to talk and to placate and to make peace. Mm-hmm. And so when you put someone who learned to attack, someone who learned to make peace, they don't ever come to an agreement because yeah. one's always attacking and one's always wondering why, yeah. you know? So my environment was like that. It's like, Man, well, what are you guys going crazy for today? You know? Oh, someone left a, a glass of water out. Okay. That warrants, you know, that warrants the screaming match. Right. Yeah. So in my head, it's like, okay, you know, on one hand they're telling me they love me. And on the other hand, they're screaming at me. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I have to make up a story about why that is. Yeah. Right. And to combat the chaos, I decided that I would make up all the answers and I would have those answers. Right. Yeah. And that showed up a lot for me as a, as a young man, right. It was something that I had to learn later in life. And so listening to you talk about your father, I was instantly curious, you know, where that showed up for you. Was it something that was just natural for you to grow into? Cause I can trace my development back to a moment where I had to literally take that on. Mm -hmm. Or was that something that you had to take on and and seek out? The, and yeah, I would say probably incrementally throughout my life, Mm -hmm. um, kind of like building, building a big, structure a block at a time really really slowly and so I, I don't know that I could point to many periods of my life as like an aha moment but many many instances that reinforced truth over long periods of time uh, that's not everyone's story a lot of people's story is I was this then this happened and I became this uh, now I may be going through one of those moments right now I'm in a, I'm in a huge period of transition with uncertainty and excitement. But up to this point, I would say most of the transformation that's happened in my life has been the, the result of incremental change over time. And most of it headed the same direction, I would say. Like, you know, it's been a few curves in the, in the path, but most of it headed the same direction. So there hasn't been that big aha moment other than I would say, I mean, yeah, there hasn't been. I grew up, the trajectory of my life has stayed mainly the same. I've learned a lot of things. I, I don't, it's not to say I knew everything. It's just mm-hmm. saying I didn't ever like have this moment as a 22-year-old kid where like, man, life, life is not at all what I thought it was. And I think that's a credit to my parents is that the picture of life that they painted for me and that they taught me is what I think life is. Mm-hmm. And so I never had to come to a grips with a whole different version of reality that I'm like, well, that's not true at all. I think that's been helpful. I don't know if that answers your question. but No, it does. I think that's a... Uh <clears throat> that's exactly what I was getting at. So for you, basically, it sounds like coming from that healthier environment, mm-hmm. I'm just comparing your story to my story. Yeah. And of course, we don't know that much about either one, but it seems like a healthier story. And so I'm, I'm equating that to this idea that in that place that, you know, someone who's developing has this opportunity to continue to stack bricks in that wall and to develop slowly, but consistently over time. Whereas someone in my position you know, for me, it was about getting away from that and then having a few moments where I saw what I was doing that 
wasn't working. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, this isn't working. Yeah. You know, what am I, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, yeah. how much longer can I fake it? You know, how much mm-hmm. longer can I pretend to be something that I'm not? Mm. And then you realize life shows you really quickly. Well, you, you need to start now. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a thing. That's good. Yeah. You said something a second ago about um, the way that your dad coped mm-hmm. uh, with conflict. Mm-hmm. And that resonates with me. Mm. Uh, I'm, I am a peacemaker and I like to console. Sense him in you, actually. Yeah, so so uh, one of the things I need to do as a father, um, as a parent, as a businessman, um, is to lean into conflict a little more. Mm. Uh, I've noticed that they're, they're, uh, I've cheated my wife out of authentic conversation. And we're just learning this in the past six, six months when we've gone through some really hard things in our home. That there were, the, the problems were outside our home. We dealt with them inside our home, and it mm-hmm. made our marriage stronger. But one of the things that, that I learned, and, and you'll understand why I'm saying this, is that I have a tendency to internalize difficult problems and not share them till I've processed them, um, till I've figured it out in my mind, whatever that means, right? Right. And so she didn't feel like she was sharing problems with me. She didn't feel like she was walking through problems with me. And that was my... I, my tendency to avoid conflict. The fear for me was if I bring this problem up to my wife, what if she thinks about it differently than me? What if she just becomes another problem? And what I mean by that is if I'm dealing with problem A and my wife's response to problem A is is something I don't like, Mm -hmm. then now I've got problem B. Does that make sense? Yeah. And now I've got two problems. And so I kind of worked through that and said, you know, I'm cheating her out of feeling close to me. I'm cheating myself out of having like my biggest supporter process this with me and be a friend in my vulnerable moments. I was, I was, I was cheating myself from having a friend that loved me through a hard time. Mm. And so I, man, when you said that about your dad, that, that reminds me of me. That's something I have to work on. The way it shows up in business is like, I'll be the guy who doesn't like actually send that invoice when I need to. Mm. Right. The, the guy who, when the, the person misunderstands and they think something's free and it's not, I should just be, hey, man, actually, I needed to charge you for that. That sounds like the most awkward conversation in the world for my personality. A lot mm-hmm. of people are like, no, no, this is business. Hey, that wasn't, you know, you, you need to pay your bill. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm learning even now that sometimes that hesitation I feel before what vulnerable conflict mm-hmm. is healthy. Not the hesitation, but it's keeping me from something healthy. 100%. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people rob themselves of that privilege, you know, and I had it, you know, you, you were talking about the experience with, within your household recently. Mm-hmm. I just had a tough conversation with my business partner, and it was interesting because it's conflict, but really what conflict amounts to for someone who really cares about the outcome is just being vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and so I, I came to my business partner with some issues that I saw in the business and some things I was feeling. And, you know, I didn't expect him to, you know, agree with me or, you know, agree with my ask in that moment, nor I agree with him. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the call, at the, at the conclusion of the conversation, we both walked away saying, man, I appreciate you. Thanks for sharing. You know, this was a really tough call for me, a really vulnerable call for me. And I appreciate you being that person. Yeah. In my life, you know, who could provide that honest feedback, that sort of honest interaction. And I think we're starved for that, man. Yeah. I really think we're starved for that. We are starved. One of the reasons I just absolutely hate small talk. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like my wife. She hates small talk. I I like it, but I feel like it's a building 
context for when I need the deeper conversation. Right. But I understand that if your life is full of small talk and you don't have those moments, and I was cheating myself out of those moments. And I've gone through, like I said, a hard time the past six months with some things professionally. Uh, and the best part of that is I have leaned into real, authentic community. Most of it comes from my church, not all of it, but people that have sat in my house and watched me cry and watched me be vulnerable and admit things that I didn't want to admit and say things I didn't want to say and basically like be selfish because I was in a really vulnerable moment and love me anyway. Mm-hmm. That's real. And had I tried to isolate and put on a different version of myself, be fake, I would have cheated myself out of what I know now are going to be lasting friendships mm-hmm. because those people have loved me, supported me through what I would like, you know, when I wasn't at my best, really, really hurting, really hurting. But now I have friends that are like, that I know, man, they, they don't need the filtered version of Sean. They saw the unfiltered, broken, despairing version, probably like to the point of like, would you shut up already about your problems? <laughs> and are still my friends and still encourage me and send me texts of motivation. And we're going to be friends for a long time because I don't have to wonder like, what if they knew the real me? They know the real me. Mm-hmm. I just let them have it. I didn't have anything to lose at that point. I met, a, and I, maybe that's what, I, when you say aha moment, I said that. But like when we think about these moments, I think that the last six months was one of those for me in this, in this sense. I just didn't care anymore if people knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Not everyone. I'm not like trying to put all my business on Facebook or blow it all over the church. But I had a few people, and I let them know everything. Everything I was feeling, cussing about my friends that I feel like let me down. And I trusted them to deal with that responsibly. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And they did, and I have I have friends that'll be friends for the rest of my life because mm-hmm. they know the real me, the hurt me, and they're going to help me through it. They're not going to just leave me to the wolves. They're helping me build back to healthier places, and I think that's important. Hundred percent. What do you think about this idea of honesty generating more honesty? So, for example, I come to you with an issue, and I say, Sean, this is how I'm feeling, man. I, I really need to bend your ear, and I'm just going to let you have it. Yeah. Right? Do you feel like you know, obviously that allows you to get to know where I'm coming from, but do you feel like that gives you permission to be more you in the context of a relationship as well? For sure. And I think for, for people that don't see it that way are probably some version of a sociopath, if I'm mm-hmm. being honest. You, when you do that, uh, you might not like this word, but I'd say you're making a bid for affection, mm-hmm. not in like a romantic sense, but you're making a bid for affection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play my card mm-hmm. for you. I'm, go- I'm hurting, Sean, going through a tough time. Then you're watching, what am I going to do? Um, and I can be stiff or distant or give you some canned answer. Sounds tough. Peace out, bro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or uh, Good luck with that. Yeah, man. That's that the, the, the Bible version of be warmed and filled, you know, and they, they said that the people that walk by, those people that are like have no home and no food and the, the church people were walking out of church going, be warmed and filled. Like, <laughs> I'm not helping you. I'm not giving you a dime, but man, I sure hope you find a house and get some food somewhere. Right. Yeah, I can, so I can respond that way. But you're looking, you're throwing that out there, playing a card saying, making a bid for affection, hoping that it's returned. Mm-hmm. And for sure, that I think, I think that when people feel lonely, the best thing they can do to build an authentic friendship is not expect everyone else to initiate. Mm. They, they've measured friendship and connection through social media. Liking this, liking that. There's no risk, no risk. You can get hurt, but not putting yourself out there by putting some photo of yourself at a restaurant when you're at a party with all pretty people doing pretty things. Right. (laughs) But you invite someone into your home and you say, hey, man, this is hard for me. I want to tell you something. And it might be even directed at them. This is really the beautiful part, I think, that that is pictured in in, in faith and like in, in picture of the way Christ redeems people. 
What if it's directed at them? Hey, I want to tell you something. Something you did hurt my feelings, or I know I've done this that was wrong against you, and I just want to apologize, Mm -hmm. let you know about it. And then you come together over an offense that actually was between the both of you, and that is a strong bind. That's real. So I think, yeah, making those bits for affection, being honest, will breed a culture of honesty. And there's very little about social media that's honest. It's It's not that you're trying to lie. It's just not in the totality of circumstances, very honest, because it's just a, a snapshot, literally, of a moment. It's not who you are. Yeah, that's exactly right, man. I, I call I always call it a carefully curated collection of crap. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, because that's really what it is. You uh-huh. know, it's, uh, you know, I've I've been pretty vulnerable on my social media, but that's just who I am. I just throw myself out there, and some yeah. people appreciate it, some people don't, and I don't care either way. Yeah. But I think it brings up that catch twenty two situation where you find that in this conversation, we're learning that, you know, as men and as spouses or as a father in your case, that that's a necessary part of communicating mm. and getting to connection with someone is being vulnerable, you know, and, and putting yourself in that position. But then on the social media piece, we're being taught that that comes from external, you know, approval, that, yeah. that, that your power comes from outside you not from inside you. So we have a generation of people who are looking for validation or are looking for, you know, their power and not realizing that they have it inside them all along. So like if, if I'm that person, I'm probably going to be less likely to come to, to you and say, Hey, Sean, Hey man, I got to get real with you and tell you something that that's yeah. really, you know, it's really on my heart right now kind of yeah. thing. You know, when you say power, I would probably, I would probably think of the word worth. Mm. We, we think our worth lies outside of us instead of inside of us. And I think that I would say for me, the work that lies inside of me isn't intrinsic in me. It's intrinsic because I'm a created being from a God that has great worth. Mm. But when we define <laughs> our worth as something external and let other people define it, we're just always living in a desperate state, a desperate state to protect the idol that we think other people are worshiping. Mm. And they are not. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. They are not. Right. Um, and we still work so hard to protect that silly little idol that we think people think of us on social media, the carefully curated crap. (laughs) Yeah, hundred percent. I think where I was going with that and and I totally agree with you, that worth piece um, definitely sums up exactly what I was wanting to describe. And when I'm talking about power, I'm talking about the agency that we have as human beings. So, you know, we have, like you were talking about with your son, something happens and then you're, you're triggered to think a certain way. And I hate using the word triggered because all the useful words are being snapped up by SJWs. But, you know, something happens. And you use whatever words you want. We have brother. a thought, man. I like words. You go with it. <laughs> we have a thought, right? Uh, you know, something happens and, you know, a chemical cocktail is released in our brain and we think something, right? But between thinking and doing, we have agency. Mm-hmm. And there's our power. So when I'm referring to stepping into my power, I'm referring to... Although I'm afraid because I didn't get an external validation from Sean on my social media. Right? Sorry, sorry, man. I'm coming to Sean and I'm saying, I've got to overcome that now. But yeah. I have this emotion mm-hmm. that's been triggered by my fear, but I know I need to do this action. And the only way I can do that is to power myself up and make the action real. Yeah. That makes I, sense. It does make sense. That sounds like a very mature response to what's going on in your head. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't do that enough as a culture. Right. To know, man, our emotions could be lying to us. They probably are lying to us. Let's have let's have something real. The way the way my church community says it is, you need if someone's hurting, they'll say you need someone to tell you true things right now. Uh, and so, what they mean is, 
you feel this, and that could be all over the place. And some of that's good, some of that's bad, some of it's desperate, some of it's confident. But we believe over here is truth that's not dependent on how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. And so when you can have a friend that's wise enough and patient enough to insert truth into your life in the moment of when you're trying to exercise your agency, your control over your emotions, that's a really healthy thing. You need those authentic relationships for someone to say, hey, how are you doing today with that thing? You know this is true, right? You're not a failure, right? You know that. Things are going to be okay. Things are going to work out. Mm-hmm. What you're, I understand you're feeling defeated or desperate or lack of motive. You know, you're not having motivation today, but you know that these things are true. It will be okay. Mm-hmm. You know that you're skilled. You know that you have gifts. These will pay off. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but they will pay off, right? We tell ourselves these true things, and we need people in our life to tell us these true things so that we're not exercising what you're calling agency. And I'm not saying you're calling it because I disagree. I'm just saying... We're not exercising that alone. That ties back to the idea of like an abundance of wise counselors. You know, there's a benefit. I need, I need people telling me sometimes, I can tell you're going through a hard time. Here's how I think you should think about it. I think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Allowing people in, that's vulnerability. So they can speak into that moment where we are trying to decide what do we do with the feeling, what we do with our, what we believe truth is. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so what I'm taking from that is the separation what you're calling truth is uh, I'm just calling fact, right? So you're having someone give you the facts. Yeah. These are the facts, but this is how you're feeling. Yeah. And those two things don't reconcile. Yeah. So Sean, let's take a second look. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yes. The other day I was, um, I'm, I'm building a business and I'm applying for jobs and I'm just going to kind of go which way works. I really want the business to work, but I'm, you know, also putting some resumes out there and I got discouraged. I'm just being honest. I got discouraged looking at all these jobs I was applying for, mm-hmm. um, believing that like, man, the, the lack of response and the negative response that I'm getting is what defines who I am. And I hadn't really struggled with that in weeks, but at Tuesday afternoon, I was having a hard time with it. And so I texted a couple of my friends and my wife said, text so-and-so that, you know, let them know you're having a hard time. So one, the model for that is, she was validating my feelings and encouraging me to be vulnerable. That's a good friend. It's a good wife. I did that, and immediately I was getting texts back from friends going, hey, you know that you have these skills. You know that they're valuable. You know it just takes one job. You know that people are here to support you if it takes longer than you want it to take. And, so, and you know that God will provide. That's one of the things that we believe about God's character is that he's a provider. doesn't mean he's, he makes us rich. doesn't mean that God gives jets. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just means he's going to provide. And so it was good. It's just things I should know and things I should remember. But in that moment, I was struggling to exercise healthy agency. I was struggling to connect what I was feeling to what I was thinking Mm. in a healthy way. And my wife, encouraging me to be vulnerable, allowed me to be vulnerable with men in my circle Mm. who then responded in a way that helped helped me deal with that day. That's funny that you, that you brought that up. I just had this, a similar conversation with a friend of mine, uh, Jeff. So, uh, What's going on, Jeff, if you're listening? Uh, But we were talking about this idea of, you know, building a brand, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that you're working on, one of the things you have experience in from a former life. And, you know, creating content, putting all this energy and effort into creating content. And like you said earlier, you throw it out there and it gets one like or (laughs) or it's totally ignored, right? Yeah. And there's a part of you that's like, well. You go check your friend setting. Like, did did I make that private? What's happening? (laughs) Hey, man, I think think Facebook's broken today. It's not working today. Clearly good content. You guys need to show it to someone. (laughs) Exactly. And we were having this conversation because, like you said, you know, there's those days where you put all of yourself into something. 
right? Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't be doing it with this idea of, well, I'm going to get something back, yeah, right? But there's a part of you that wants something back. For right? sure. And there's that part of you that wants that validation. And on those days when it doesn't come, you have to find a way to hashtag move anyway. Right? Yeah. So he and I were having this conversation about, you know, what do you, what do you do to move anyway, man? Like what, you know, what, what does it look like for you? And I was just telling him, I'm like, you know what? I have to remember that, you know what? It's not about reinforcement, either positive or negative, right? It's about the message that I want to get across. And so like, if someone, if I put a message out and and 50 people love it, that's fantastic. But if I put a message out, that's completely authentic to me, and it turned me on and it's, it's producing more of what I want to bring into the world, then I have to be okay if people don't like it, right? Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't play stock on the ego side either way, either positive or negative. It can't be about that. It has to be about me expanding who I am as a man and, and putting good things into the world. Yeah. And if that's the thing, then that's the thing. Yeah, because the alternative is we're just letting social media engagement be that version that we talked about earlier of mm-hmm. a bad parent. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I will be defined by the affirmation of these likes. Yes. And to, to use your way of thinking about it with your son and the interaction piece, we would be allowing social media to teach us how to be right. So it's like, okay, well, if I'm only going to put something out, if it gets 50 likes or a hundred likes, yeah, then I mean, better make sure I tailor it so that I get that. Yeah. And then I've you're lived lost in that world too. Have you? <laughs> yeah. 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 Lived in that world too, where the the content is created in order to make the to get the engagement. Mm. That's not bad, as long as you know that's what you're doing. Sure. But yeah, I've lived there too. Was that in your role as social media? Yeah. God? So so for the audience, I was um, VP of digital content slash executive editor of a uh, website called um, right now it's the Western Journal, which is a um, very very conservative political news site. And so we were um, wholly dependent, I'll say wholly, 90%, so basically wholly dependent on Facebook. And so we catered to what Facebook wanted. By Facebook, I mean the audience, not the people. And it was very, very, very successful um, for years up until Donald Trump won. And then that's when all this stuff hit. We're like, well, we're not going to let fake news rule the day. Mm. And we weren't fake news, but but there was – a lot of fake news that was trying to be political at the mm-hmm. time. You know, there's all sorts of kinds of fake news. Well, they went through it. They punished all those political sites, did they not? Yeah. Yeah. They punished some more than others. Mm-hmm. They threatened. They said, Facebook said, you're going to lose 20% of your traffic. We lost 80%. Wow. Uh, they said, well, you've got to have a better ad experience. And we showed them the thing you're telling us not to do, CNN is doing. Look at their website right now. They're doing the very thing that you're telling us is why we're getting penalized. So you saw some pretty obvious bias yeah, one, one but, side or the other? Yeah, I would say for sure. But also, there's, I mean, you can call it bias or not. Um, there are some things we needed to learn as an organization at the time. We weren't journalists. We were content creators and a tech company that knew how to, game sounds malicious, but know, knew how to work the algorithm. Mm-hmm. And they figured out that we knew how to work it, and they changed it. Mm. Uh, we weren't journalists. We were trying. We weren't trying to be disingenuous. People got fired over writing stories that were false. We weren't trying to do that, but we certainly framed it in a way that appealed to our audience. That's where it comes into social media. We would mm-hmm. frame our stories in a way that appealed to our audience. Sure. And avoid stories that were, would have been inconvenient to our audience. Right? Let someone else tell that story. We don't need to tell that story. So um, when your job depends on getting Facebook to show that story, 
you have to figure out like what, what do people want to see? What do they want to hear? And that dictates a lot of the narrative. Um, again, I don't know that, I don't even know that it's bad unless you tell yourself that's not what is happening, you know, any more than like, is it bad if you're selling a magazine that's going to be shown in the aisle of the grocery store? If you go, do we really want to pick out a picture that makes people want to buy it? And you're like, um, yes, of course you do. Like, that's stupid. Do we really want a piece of cake on the front of that, you know, cooking magazine that makes people want to eat cake? Why don't we just tell the truth? Mm-hmm. No, it's stupid. You don't show a broken egg. I mean, that's a true part of making a cake, right? You show like a delicious piece of cake or you show a beautiful home when you're trying to sell home magazines. It's not lying, but you know what you're doing. Right. You're painting things in the best picture to make people associate with the best version. 99.9% of people are not going to make a piece of food that looks like that or have a house that looks like that. We still buy it. We're entertained by it. It's not a lie. It's just a thing we're selling. Um, now, the flip side of that is I don't work there anymore. And the day I left, I unfollowed all of those Facebook pages and every other Facebook page that was political, and I haven't missed it. Mm. Like, I haven't missed it at all. I love, like, making friends and not worried about who's sharing what. I don't know. People are like, what do you think about Trump and MP? I'm like, I don't even know. I don't know what Trump's <laughs> doing. I don't get impeached over. I don't care. I'm sure it matters. I think yeah. people should care. Me, personally, I don't care right now. I'm just You're trying done. to build a, build a thing and... Come November, I'll know who I'm voting for. I don't. I don't need to watch every day. That's it, man. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I was huge into the politics thing for for many many years, and for the last, I guess, four or five years, I haven't posted anything political. Yeah. And my life is so much better. Yeah. I mean, and and, and the people who do, man, I just unfriend, unfriend, unfriend. And and like I'm telling you, I'm not ashamed. I'm just telling you, I was behind a lot of that content. Mm. We had 17, um, 140 million page views a month, which is Massive. That's a lot. Yeah. Seventeen sure. billion pieces of content uh, were shown on Facebook in one year from our site. Wow. Eleven a second. Every second, we had eleven pieces of content being shown on Facebook That's to users. So we were out there. But what, where I was going with, as far as bias, yeah, sure. There's some bias. You know, tech companies, Silicon Valley, different culture, um, definitely leans left. But I'm not worried about that. Really, I think the more important thing was that we were trying to do it right. Mm-hmm. And just were behind the eight ball. And then so when the trusted, this is, I don't know if anyone cares about this, but there was an algorithm shift that was based on what they call the trusted partner mm-hmm. algorithm shift, meaning the people that were trusted most by the Facebook audience would get a boost that hurt us because we were new brand. You don't know all the people you follow on Facebook. Right. Um, and we were a, almost like virtually a Facebook only publication. Mm. So that hurt us. People knew CNN from everywhere. They knew Fox News from everywhere. They knew New York Times from everywhere. You, no matter what you believed, you knew who they were, and you right. trusted them ninety percent of the time. Right. So when that algorithm hit, I know I'm snapping. That helps your audience none. <laughs> when that hit, that hurt us. They could see it. Yeah. 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 So let's talk a little bit about your new venture and tell us a little bit about what you want to create with Wu Train. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. So um, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in my background is watching people um, excelled by being humble Mm -hmm. and growing and then watching really skilled technicians grow stagnant in their development uh, by not leaning into outside influences and learning. Mm -hmm. And what I do is provide an opportunity for someone who's trying to develop leadership skills and be pushed out of their comfort zone to, to have someone push them, probe a little bit, hold them accountable, help them develop skills uh, in a way that lets them, experience the best version of who they are. I, there's a lot of coaching going on, and like I didn't realize even how much when I started to build this. I have a pretty – I want to narrow it even more, but right now I'm thinking mostly business 
people and pastors, uh, middle managers that need to be developed to be the next level of senior managers or executives. Say what, what's holding them back? And usually it's a version of um, communication, competence, or care. I should get bonus points for that alliteration. I yes, I was going to say, that's all C's, man. <laughs> yeah. I hope that, Straight uh, C's. I hope, I hope that your <laughs> listeners appreciate what I just did there. <laughs> but really, like, uh, that's what I want to help someone approve on. It's like, are you communicating clearly? Are you communicating with, in a healthy way? Are you communicating in a way that helps build a team to productivity and effectiveness? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, again, a lot of leaders go stagnant because they think their position or knowledge gives them a pass to communicate either harshly, unkindly, or unclearly. And it's just everyone else's responsibility to figure out what the freak they're talking about. And that will slow their development down. Mm-hmm. Even if they're an executive, even if they're the top of the chain, if they don't have a desire to learn how to communicate effectively and build a team, it will, it will stall the organization. I'm seeing it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a guy that's good at a thing. He might can code well. might can be a good accountant. And it'll grow. It'll grow. But if you 50, 100, but at some point, depending on what the skill is, the team the teams will stop following because you need to develop leaders and inspire leaders. Right. And being a tactician, a, being a skilled technician at a thing doesn't mean you know how to build a team. That's you true. may know how to build a team. You may know how to inspire and motivate and affirm. But if you're only good at a thing, that doesn't mean you're good at leading. And what I can do is help you be a better leader. Will I tell you how to like enter the... Asian market from the American market and transform. No, I don't, I'm not going to be able to tell you that. I'll tell you on the front end. Can I help you motivate the people around you and take those four or five people that you feel like need to help build your organization for the next level because mm-hmm. you've got to put your mind somewhere else? Yeah, I can do that. Can I help you realize the areas we need to grow? Sure, just in communication alone. But th- then we can identify competencies. Are there skills that would be better? Help develop accountability on those action plans. And I believe, I really believe that caring for people is a missing instrument, a missing tool in the quiver of executives, mm. caring for people, uh, not caring for them on your terms, but like legitimately caring for them. And I, I can help. You mean getting down on their level and finding out what they're... That's part of it. Yeah. yeah. Get down their level. What matters mm. to them, giving them freedom to kind of express some creative differences, mm-hmm. listening to them. Oh my goodness. Listening to the people in your organization will make it go so much better. And I don't mean an open door policy. I mean an open mind policy. Anyone can say I have an open door policy. Come in and talk anytime you want. And then you walk out and they don't care what you said. Right. Listen, change. I think a good question to ask an executive, if you're asking, like, when was the last time someone underneath you came in, gave you an idea you had never heard before, and you actually did it? Right. If they can't remember, if their eyes go to the ceiling and they go, hmm, I don't know. Like, that's probably a sign that, like, they're arrogant, ignorant, or don't care about other people in the organization. Yeah, probably looking down on the people that work for them, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Yeah. But when those same executives are willing to say, um, I know I have these skills, but I want to be developed in these other skills. It's scary for me to go to like my VP and say, hey, make me a better man or go to my spouse or go to the people I'm managing, my direct reports and say, tell me all the ways that I'm terrible. Um, We have things like 360 degree assessments for sure. But having someone that's safe, non-threatening, like a coach, can help you build in, in, a, in a quick way, in a healthy way, that is really hard to find. And oh. so I'm trying to provide that opportunity. That's beautiful, right man. 100% definitely needed. Uh, it's so valuable in any endeavor, I think, to have an outside set of eyes and ears, 
you know, come at you with, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is how I think you're showing up. Maybe take a look at it. You know? Yeah. As a, it's like you said at the top of the podcast, we really don't know how we show up a lot of times. People really think they have an awareness, but no, not at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, and it, I've seen it work for myself. I had a coach mm-hmm. and he's been great. He lives here in the same town with us and he's changed my life. Uh, and I don't mean like in a, I just feel better kind of way, like real results kind of way where I mm. had a better life because I was managing myself better. I was communicating clearly. I was a better husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like, man, I want to do that for people. And I actually went on this little um, retreat, sim- probably similar to what you're thinking about doing mm-hmm. to, to, it was one-on-one with him. Both our wives were there. So I guess it was two on two, but the main point was for he and I to talk. We went through, we listened to some sermons and we drank some beer and smoked some cigars and went through a, exercise to do a life mission statement and at the end of it what are the gifts that you have what are you passionate about and man it couldn't have been clear that this coaching thing is right up my alley it wasn't just something I saw once I want to try that no it it really is something like man I pulled that out of myself through this exercise that's what this is what's in me Mm -hmm. and the way I would say that as a Christian is God made me this way to do this kind of thing I want to do it I want to try it so I'm really excited about it one of the things that, and you probably would resonate with this, that I want, that I'm trying to avoid is, I have strengths and I have weaknesses. I don't want to spend my whole professional life fixing my weaknesses. Right. I want to be aware of them, and I don't want to flaunt them and pretend that that they don't matter. But I don't want to like bend to them. I want to, I want to leverage my strengths. I think God made each person unique with the strengths. And if I spend all my time thinking about my weaknesses, God's probably like, "What are you doing? Like, I made you to do these great things over here." You have these unique particular skill sets. Leverage that. Just be aware that you have these areas of improvement, these weaknesses that you can, you know, you not you might need a calendar and a to to do list more than you know Jason over here. And so, yeah, that's that's the phase that I'm in right now. I'm building this thing, and I'm having a blast doing it. And so we'll just keep plugging along and seeing what happens. That's beautiful, brother. Thanks for sharing that. So uh, tell me at this point in your life, man, what does success look like for you? Um, so. I can put it in two buckets, but the biggest bucket is I want to take care of my family mm-hmm. and represent God well. That's what I want to do. I'm provide for my family and represent God well. Uh, I want people to think better of God for having known me and talked to me, mm-hmm. and I want to provide for my kids and my family. That's what success looks like to me. Now, do I have goals that look like like metrics on a spreadsheet? Sure, man. Yeah, I do. I want to make. I'd love to make a certain amount of money in a year. Another amount of money in three years, certain amount of clients in three months in a year and three years. Talked about that today with some with some people that were working on some things together. And those are good goals. And would I feel like I was being successful if I met them? Yeah, I would I would be successful in, to re, in regard to those goals. Mm-hmm. But big picture, I think if I represent God well with the way that I live, and what I mean that is my life speaks truth about God, not in a fake way that like everything's great. I want to be vulnerable and say, I'm not, I don't, I'm not living well because I love God. I'm living authentically. And so because I'm going to make mistakes and hurt people around me, I'm going to need truth, and God is truth, and so I'm going to be okay. Do that, provide for my family. That's what success looks like for me. I love that, man. I love that you didn't lead, lead with money. You know, I feel like a lot of people are waking up to this idea that success isn't private jets and a yeah. big, big fat bank account. It, yeah. it's, it's what creates joy for you and what creates fulfillment for you. And yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I like money. That'd be great. There's but, nothing wrong with money. <laughs> but it's nothing wrong with private jets for any yeah. of you guys out there who have them or want them. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there's this idea I think floating around that that stuff makes you whole. 
mm-hmm. and that's that's not it. That's not it at all. So yeah. I, I appreciate you, you know, sharing your viewpoint there. I think about it this way: like you, you talked about having a difficult or some difficulties in your childhood, mm-hmm. and I talked about some things I liked about my childhood. Mm-hmm. None of that had to do with money. No, none of that had to do with money. No, the things that made your life difficult, I imagine. Wouldn't have been any better if your parents had four million dollars in the bank. No, definitely not. And they were still the same people. Yeah. And yeah. nothing about my life that was good. And there were some difficulties as a childhood, but it's because there was a lot of money in the bank. There wasn't. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. And so I don't. I feel like yeah, I want to make a lot of money. And if this thing takes off, and next thing you know, like Sean's having the Wu train jet, awesome. <laughs> but I don't also want to tell myself the lie that that means I'm something I'm not, and that I'm a better husband or father or person of faith because I have those things mm-hmm. it means none of that. 100%. It's just my business succeeded. Okay. hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of times when I do talk to like deeply religious people, they think they have this negative sort of energy around money. Mm-hmm. And it's always funny for me because I'm like, well, you can always do more good if you have more resources. You know that, right? <laughs> like, well, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> you know, I think I know that accent. I might know him. Yeah. I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> I seen him down at the Seven Eleven. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's this, it's this sort of strange thing where it's like, uh, you know, it's a, you know, people take that, the part of, you know, money's the root of all evil, but they don't give you the whole verse, you know, they don't, they leave out the, for the love of money part right. of, the, of the whole thing. Right. And then you have, uh, you have those folks just sort of make excuses for being where they are because they attach negativity to having money. And it's, it's, it's just the wrong way to look at it from my point of view, as I feel like if you know, money just makes you more who of, you, of who you are. So if at the end of the day you want to do good things and you're a good person who wants to bring to light great things in the world, then, hey, you need more resources to do that. You got to yeah. make that a reality. And in my household, it was interesting because my dad's side of the family, you know, they were fairly wealthy. My uncle was a really rich, rich guy on his side of the family. And then on my mom's side of the family, not so much. You know, so family gatherings, Christmas at one grandma's house is very different from Christmas at the other grandma's house. But on the poor side, we always had more fun. Really? Right? Yeah. yeah. We always had more fun. And it, but it wasn't because we didn't have money. It was just because th- what was valued wasn't the things. It was the interactions that we had with one another. It was my Uncle Dewey telling stories and, you know, people sharing food and, you know, just laughing and cutting up and just having a good time. Whereas over here, it was a little bit more structured, a little less free, mm-hmm. you know, a little more keeping up appearances kind of a thing. Yeah. And that's just the way that it was, you know, and as a kid, you know, you see, you see this stuff and you, and I brought it in and I, I realized that happiness wasn't predicated on either of those things, mm-hmm. you know, because during different seasons of everyone's life, the haves were miserable and not, and the have nots were miserable and not. Yeah. So I was able to disassociate that early. So for me, I've always just wanted freedom. I didn't really care about the money. Yeah. If the money helps me get freedom, so much the better yeah. kind of a thing. That's tough for people to, to get there. I agree with you, Yeah, but that is a tough place for people to get there because of what they see and hear. Our culture is saying money money is money and reputation mm-hmm. is everything. Mm-hmm. You can do what it takes to get it. Yeah. Yeah, this is really cool to, to, to hear you lead with something other than, you know, financial success. Yeah. But not discard it. No, no I don't. Not, I don't not discard, discard it. it. It's a useful tool. Some of the the best things historically that have happened uh, have been because generous people, some, a lot of them of faith mm-hmm. donated money to build a hospital or build an orphanage that I could not do. I, you know, I can't go build an orphanage in, in, you know, in Africa right now, but there are some people that could write a check and have to mm-hmm. do that. Oh yeah. It's because they have resources. Uh, 
So no, I don't discard it at all. I want I want to handle it with care and with as a good steward when I you know when more comes. But no, I don't discard it. That's beautiful, brother. So this morning you had your first uh, forum. Yeah, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. How so did that go? I think it went really well. I had um, a good number of people there. I had a VP of sales. Had a CEO of a tech startup. Uh, I had a guy that's a social media influencer that's just on the cusp. Already has an agent uh, doing well on TikTok, like we mentioned earlier. Right, right. Um, a pastor who's trying to do uh, you call it a side hustle, but he's trying to build a business um, of helping marriages get stronger. Mm-hmm. And so how does how does he develop content for that and do retreats and price that out and set, set you know, expectations for that. And then a coach, that uh, executive coach that's helped me, the one I mentioned earlier that's kind of transitioning out but working through things. And he, he was there, I think, in large part for support for me. Sure. Uh, so we talked about goal setting, the importance of having a plan, the importance of writing it down, the importance of like having clear goals. We talked about smart, what a smart goal is. Then we mm-hmm. talked about how to prioritize them and several different tools. And all in all, man, it went really well. Uh, I, I, I'm charging people to come to the group, um, but I considered a good group when I, when I talk very little. And so I tried to write the questions ahead of time that I thought would provide, provide meaningful discussion. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was great. I really in, enjoyed it. A lot to learn. There are things I'm like, oh, I probably won't do that next time, and I'll change the, you know, the pace or the content. Always, always trying to learn how to do it better. But I was, I was really pleased. And the feedback I've already gotten just today, like I said, it happened a few hours ago, has been really positive from, you know, everybody. So I'm going to learn, try to do it better, but, man, I'm excited. It's a unique learning opportunity to hear from so many people. And a friend of mine told me, if you get one good idea out of it, it's worth the money. And they got more than one good idea today. That's fantastic, brother. Yeah. That had to feel great. It it was. And I'm excited because, you know, I'm I'm literally getting help for what I'm doing in the room from while I'm doing it. Right, right. And so that was helpful. That's fantastic. So tell these guys listening that might be interested how they can get in touch with you and maybe get uh, in on the next forum. Oh, yeah. Sounds great. So if you go to WooTrain.com, that's W-O-O-T-R-A-I-N, WooTrain.com, there's a couple of links on there. One, you can sign up for the email. That says Upside Down Business on the top tab. And then you can click where it says Coaching, and there's a Leadership Forum link right there and you can sign up. But my email's on the bottom of any page on that website and you can email me if you have questions if that's easier. And my phone number's on the website for now. Fantastic. And so I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Awesome. So we'll link all that up in the show notes. And and my last question's always the same, my friend. That's simply this. What does wellness mean for you? Probably similar to success. Man, to be well, I mean, I think of the opposite of that, right? Unhealthy. Right. What what does unhealthy look like? Mm -hmm. And and the opposite, uh, unhealthy to me is like rejecting good things. Mm. Okay. And that's rejecting, you know, healthy habits, rejecting healthy food, rejecting healthy relationships, uh, rejecting healthy wisdom. Mm. Um, so wellness to me is someone who is, who is trying to get better at their faith, at their fitness, at their relationships, their finances. That's healthy to me. That's what, so that's what wellness would be to me is someone that's learning, growing in the right areas, looking to the right places. You know, I can say, I want to eat healthy. And that, McDonald's is my version of healthy. You're like, well, your intentions are good, but your execution is poor. <laughs> it's a, uh, now not, I will eat McDonald's, but I'm not going to pretend that it's healthy when I do it. Uh, but I think that wellness for me is, is knowing the areas I need to grow and knowing how to grow them. Mm. 
That's beautiful, brother. Well put. Well appreciate put. that. Hey, man, I want to thank you for being here today. I picked up so many nuggets listening to you talk and uh, listen to you tell us a little bit about your experience. And appreciate I would love to have you come back anytime, man. I would love it. This was a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you. You're doing really a good thing it. here. It's going to go. It's going to go great. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. So guys, be sure and check Sean out. I'll make sure everything's linked up in the show notes. Be sure and check those out. Reach out to him if you're interested in getting some executive coaching done. Be sure and refer him out if that's not you. And we will see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.